You are listening to the Hingework Podcast, a conversation about creativity, joy, and authenticity from the overflow of true community. Welcome, guys, to Hingework. Um, yeah, we're um, yeah excited to have you guys here tonight. Um, after last month, Jeff and Liz shared um, about their businesses and husband and wife dynamic entrepreneurial um, duo. We were talking about like where, who, who's, who should come next month and right away um, I was like, well, um, I think Sean Smucker should come. Um, Sean and I got to know each other I think about 10 years ago and um, he was just telling Zach and Casey, um, I think I was selling stone at the time and stopped by a coffee shop um, and just felt like we should talk and so that kind of birth the friendship and both realized we were um, fathers and entrepreneurs and our families got to hang out and we're going to probably um, share a few of Sean's stories tonight. Um, we had a great time getting to know them um, and it was cool just the friendship that came out of that um, yeah. just a little couple minutes at a coffee shop and the next thing our families, our friends that we were kind of sharing in adventures. There's a million reasons why I felt like Sean would be great for you guys to hear from. Um, his wife Miley's not here tonight, but um, she's incredible as well and also uh, a very gifted writer. I think as I was thinking about tonight, I wanted to just hear some parts of your story. So Sean's a, a writer full-time now. Um, and when we met, he had just, you were what, like a year or two into that? Just, just I was months. Okay, yeah. months. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, maybe rewind like a year before that. And how did you, yeah. How did you make it from Virginia yeah. to Lancaster? So in 2000, well, from 2001 to 2005, I was uh, running a business in England with my brother-in-law. And that was, um, it wasn't hugely successful. And my wife and I had our first two kids in England and we wanted to get back to the States. So I had a friend in Virginia who had a painting business uh, commercial and residential painting and it was a good way for us to be able to get back to the States. We didn't really have a lot of other options at that point. So I joined him and it was a great little business for a couple of years, 2006, 2007, 2008. And then um, when the market, when the, when the uh, real estate bubble burst in 08 and 09, um, we basically, by the summer of 09, we were like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in debt, and the winter was looming, which in the painting business, you know, you make all your money in the summer and the fall, and hopefully enough to kind of get through the winter and then hit the spring running. And going into that winter of 2009, we hadn't been able to save any money, and we were, you know, we had this huge amount of debt, and so, my wife and I looked at each other and we just thought, what are we going to do? You know, like this is not, this is not going to work. In the meantime, during those years, I had started co-writing. I had co-written uh, two books up to that point, And that was really where my heart was, was in writing. And it, ha it always had been. I, I had, I sort of thought that I would have to work in business to make a living. Um, and to think about trying to write for a living just seemed really far-fetched and, and impossible. So, uh, but when we got to the end of 2009, we sort of realized, okay, we've been chasing this business thing, which I don't really want to do, and look where it's gotten us. <laughs> We're hugely in debt, 
um, I could be a writer and be hugely in debt. Like that's, you know, that seemed like a much better option. Um, so we decided at the end of 2009 to move in with my parents here back in Lancaster where I'd grown up. The painting business was in Virginia. So we packed all of our belongings into a U-Haul, uh, miraculously got out of a lot of financial stuff that we, that we were kind of tied up in, in Virginia, and moved into my parents' basement with our four kids. And I had a few writing projects lined up, but not very much. Uh, and, we, and my wife and I talked about it and decided that we would give it six months. Like if we, you know, so we moved home in October, November, and we said, okay, well, we'll give it six months. And if I can find enough projects to keep going, then that's what we'll do. And if I can't, then, you know, I'll start sending out my resume or whatever. And that was 10 years ago. <laughs> I think my favorite part of the story when you told me the first time, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think what you said was you were like, I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. And Miley looked at you and said, well, this is what we're going to do. We had talked about, so, you know, that whole shifting of the economy kind of happened, I think, end of 08, beginning of 09, and that's when everyone started to really feel the pinch was spring of 09 into the summer. And so things didn't feel right in the painting business. Like, we kind of knew early in 09, wait a second, this is not. Job sizes were much smaller. I wasn't getting nearly as many calls. And so we were kind of in the beginning of 09 starting to feel that. And we, we had, initially it was a joke. Well, worst case scenario, you know, we'll move into my parents' basement. Um, and then the summer came along, and it was, worst case scenario, we can always move in with my parents. And I still remember the day when we were standing in the kitchen, and Miley said, we have to move in with your parents. Like, it was... That was not a fun conversation to have, you know, to feel like I'm 33 years old, 10 years of business behind me, um, and to feel like we had to start over from scratch was not a, not a good thing. But yeah, I mean, she was, she was really the impetus behind, look, we have to do this. Yeah. She was very encouraging as far as like, you need to write. Mm -hmm. um, yeah which I remember you know, that part of the story to me really stuck out loud and clear because as a husband and wife, you know, it's, it's obviously um, vital for us to be encouraging each other to get after our dreams and it's not always easy um, to do that. So you guys, um, so you made it back here, you had a couple projects, you made it through six months mm -hmm. and I think one of the next things that sticks out to me, we started hanging out as families, and I just loved meeting you and hearing your story because I was like, this is awesome. Like, this is someone I can relate to. Yeah. Um, he has no money. Yeah. He, has, <laughs> he has tons of kids. <laughs> someone who, like, had it all figured out at 25 right. and yeah. then and used to really make fun of people who moved back into their parents. Yes. And then I got to do that when I was 27. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, there was a lot of things, but just the way you guys were pursuing life and going like, no, this is just who we are, and I don't understand, like, we don't know how it's going to work, but we know we're just going to put one foot in front of the other and go for it. And so we started hanging out as families and connected, and then one of the 
I don't know, two or three times later, we hung out. You guys started talking about the idea of what you were going to do with the next four or five, yeah, I don't remember many four months, months yeah. four months of your life. So why don't you take us through that? Yeah, so when we, when we made this big leap, uh, we ended up living with my parents for about four or five months, and I started to get some work coming in. So we rented a place out in paradise. Um, and I think making that, making that jump and seeing it start to work. I mean, it wasn't easy, but, but thinking, okay, we, this might actually, you know, we can make a life this way. It sort of, it, it started to knock down all of these walls in the way that we thought just about life in general. So we had always had this dream of someday when we retire, we're gonna get an RV and we're gonna take a trip around the country. Well, by the time we got to the end of 2011, the place that we lived in, we rented and the owner was gonna sell it, so we knew we had to move out. And I had work lined up into 2012, like April or May. And we thought, why are we waiting? Like, what are we waiting for with this trip? We've always wanted to go on a trip. I have work lined up. I don't have to be in any, anywhere in particular. And, and that's when our thinking really started to change I think we're, you know, it's very easy to get programmed into thinking, okay, this is when I'm gonna get a job, and this is when I'm gonna get married, and this is when I'm gonna have kids, and this is when I'm gonna, you know, retire, and this is what I'm gonna do after I retire. Um, and we just started to think, why not, why not do it now? Because you don't, nothing's guaranteed, you know, we're not, who knows what will happen in the future. And so we started to really think seriously about this and we thought, we could do this. Like we could, actually, we could actually do this. And my uncle has this bus that he had turned into an RV. It's a super old diesel bus. Um, the inside was fairly nice, but not you know amazing. And so he said we could have it once we made this decision that we could use it. And he even gave us like, I don't know, thousands towards gas because we literally, it was a dollar a mile. The bus got four miles to the gallon, and it, gas at that point, diesel was $4 a gallon for diesel. So it was every mile, it was like dollar out the window, dollar out the window. We're not turning back. Exactly, yeah, we can't afford to. So yeah, so he gave us some gas money, and it was awesome, and so we, we hit the road. Yeah. And you guys had four kids. How many kids four, at this time? Yeah. So four kids. So Sean, Sean and I were like, yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna take the RV and go cross country for four months. You know, and we had four kids. Or, yeah, we had four at that time as well. And I was like, this is freaking incredible. Like, this is these are people who are actually doing this. There's a lot of people who talk about doing a lot of things, and these are guys who are actually just going for it and not waiting. And so. Um, so yeah, we hung out. I think it was literally like within a week of you guys leaving. I remember your house was all packed up and um, I think we were looking at and just listening to the different spots that you were gonna hit. And yeah. so take us through like the first 48 hours of that trip. I had a friend who lived in Virginia. I'd never been to, they had moved since we had lived there and we didn't really know where they lived. And so they said, yeah, come on out, you know? And I said, well, this is a big bus. Like, can we get to your house? Oh yeah, no problem, you know, it's, It'll be fine. So we start driving, we get off of 15, and now we're kind of going on these back roads. I mean, this is a 40-foot bus, you know, longer than this room with a, with a minivan on the back. We were pulling our minivan. So we were 55 feet long. That's like a silo. Um, 
and we pull onto this back road, and I'm getting super I had an ulcer within a couple days. I had never driven anything like this before, never. And so I'm driving this bus, and, and the road's getting narrower, but you can't turn around. I mean, I can't turn around at this point. And so we finally get to their driveway, and they live on this farm, and it turns out it's in the middle of nowhere in Virginia. And I go to turn into their lane, didn't notice like this really shallow drainage ditch, and just the back wheels just went right in there. And so within 48 hours of leaving the house, we were stuck. Had to call out a huge wrecker. I was so stressed by this point. Like, I'm thinking, we have four months of this ahead of driving this thing. So that was the start. But, you know, we got into a groove, and we got used to being in, in close proximity with each other, and it, it became a really beautiful time for our family. Absolutely. I mean, there was a point where we were driving through New Mexico, and I had never seen that kind of beauty before. It was, it was, like you, you use the word breathtaking, but it was literally breathtaking. I mean, we, you know, we would just go around the next bend and gasp. And I remember when we got to the Grand Canyon, um, have you got, has anyone been to the Grand Canyon, the South Rim? So when you're coming up, like, you, you know, you're climbing, you don't realize how high that is, but you're just climbing and climbing. And so in the bus, it has these huge panoramic windows on the front, you know, and so everybody's up front, like the kids are looking and, you know, and we come around this turn and the Grand Canyon is right there. I mean, it's thousands of feet down. And we, our son Sam was like three at the time, three or four. So he's up in the front and he sees and his face just, and he starts pushing back. He was like, he was not happy about that. But it was amazing. It was amazing. And um, so that was definitely a highlight. And then, of course, there was the Tetons. Um, so we're following GPS, um, you know, and that's how every good story starts off. We were following <laughs> GPS. And we, uh, we came to the Tetons, and we were coming, we were, we were making our way back towards Yellowstone from the west. We had gone up the coast, and we were coming back from San Francisco. And there were a couple different options on roads you can use to get to Yellowstone, and so we just took the most direct, which wasn't a great decision. So we end up coming into this little town, and we see these huge signs that are, you know, the size of one of these walls. Uh, warning, you know, no vehicles over a certain amount of weight, no vehicles over a certain length, and just, you know, these signs were every half mile, thinking, oh, what are we getting ourselves into? Well, soon we're climbing, climbing, you know, these switchbacks, and the bus is barely going. I mean, it, like, I felt like at any point we would just start drifting backwards. I have the gas all the way to the floor, and it's just do, 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 like, and sometimes it would overheat, so I'd have to coast to the side and just hold the brake. So I'm sitting there holding the brake while the bus cools off, and then when the buzzer goes off, I would let my foot off the brake and go to the gas, and the whole bus would drift back like five feet, and then it would slowly start again. I was thinking, oh man, what have we gotten into? This is not good. And I had a truck driver friend who said, you should never go down a hill faster than you go up a hill. So, you know, if you're going up 10, 15 miles an hour, you really need to maintain that speed on the other side. Well, I'm thinking, how can I maintain, like I'm going two, three miles an hour. I don't know how I can even go down that slow. So we get to the top of the, and this was the infamous Teton Pass. So we're at the top, we're like 7,000 feet up. 
the, the downhill is a four mile downhill, and it's like a 10 to 12% grade. So most highways don't go over 6%, um, and this was, you know, very steep. So we're sitting again at the top, and my wife is very nervous, and I'm very nervous. Um, and so we were enjoying the view. I mean, it was just, you know, absolutely amazing. You could see, you could almost see down into Jackson Hole, and you could see out across the mountains. And so we climbed in the van, or climbed in the bus, <clears throat> and start winding our way down. And we hadn't gone more than a quarter mile of the four miles before my brake light starts going on. And you could smell the brakes, like just the smoke. And smoke started coming up from the side of the bus. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. So we get to a pull off and I, and I pulled over. And you could see because everything was a switchback. So you could see maybe another quarter mile down or half mile down, there was another pull off. And so we sat there for 15, 20 minutes, and I thought, we'll just do this the whole way down the mountain. You know, we'll, we'll just go nice and slow, we'll get to the next pull-off, and we'll wait there for a while. And so, eased back onto the road, and, I'm, and, and the brakes are not happy, and I'm pushing, by the time we approach the next pull-off, I'm literally, the brake is against the floor, and we're not quite stopping. Like, we're almost stopping, but not quite. So I pulled off, and I'm, I'm literally pulling on the steering wheel, trying to get this thing to stop, trying to get leverage on the brake, and it wouldn't stop. So we just coasted back out and started down. And my wife comes up. This still gives me, like, makes me sick to my stomach. So my wife comes up, and she, she sees me, like, you know, struggling, and she says, you can't stop, can you? And I was like, nope. And so she, you know, gets the kids to the back of the bus, and I am just like pulling on this brake for dear life. I mean, pulling on the steering wheel, pushing on the brake, and, but we're just going a little faster, a little faster down this mountain. And I thought, I'm gonna have to like drive up against the side of the mountain or something to stop, because this is not gonna end well. So we come around a turn, and there's a runaway truck ramp. And I always saw those before and thought, what kind of idiot has to use a runaway truck ramp? <laughs> and so we're approaching this thing, and even then in my mind I'm thinking, we're like a mile down out of four miles. But still in my mind I'm thinking, ah, oh, I don't want to do that. Like I know there's going to be a lot of hassle if I take that we're talking getting a wrecker to pull us out and take us down the mountain. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. And Miley's sitting there and she's like, you're taking this, right? Like, you're getting off here. And so fortunately for us, there was no traffic coming because we had to cross traffic to get into it. It was on the left-hand side. We drove over. At that point, we were only going maybe 20 miles an hour, but, you know, picking up speed. And so we barely went into it because it was thick, you know, very deep gravel, and we just kind of sunk in. And I remember sitting there, and I was just, I was shaking. Miley starts just bawling, gets out, walks up to the top of the ramp, and I see her just sitting up there. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is insane. Like, what just happened or what could have just happened? So yeah, so a, a tow truck, huge tow truck came up and towed us down, and they checked our brakes, and it was just, 
It was the incline, plus we, we learned later it was having the minivan on the back. The weight was kind of pushing us down the hill. Um, there was one more at the bottom of the hill, but it was all overgrown and had not been maintained, so um, that wouldn't have been an option. Five months after we were there, a truck driver actually died on that stretch. Um, he had not caught the first ramp and made it to the bottom, but then he couldn't make the turn. There's a big sweeping turn at the bottom. And so he got to the bottom, but wrecked his truck and, and he died, so. It was one of those things we sat there, you know, kind of talking about um, confronting your fears and just like what that's like in that moment. You guys did a great job. Um, Miley was sharing what was going on inside her. Sean was kind of describing how he's trying to be tough and he's sitting there with both feet like pumping on the brakes and his wife next to him like, so are you gonna tell me you can't yeah. stop? <laughs> like, kids, um, let's go to the back and buckle up. Everything will be fine. And like, meanwhile, your life is flashing before your eyes. But, and I think I do want, like Miley, um, it's still one of my favorite um, things that I've ever read is her, she did this, uh, was it was a blog post about like internally her little discussion and conversation thing with God um, through that time. And it, uh, I feel like I've had so many of those um, about things less daunting than your family flying down the side of um, Teton Pass without any breaks. But um, I don't know if that's still floating around anywhere. Um, I think the, the thing that really struck her was that the, the first overwhelming question, I think, I don't know, I think a lot of us feel this way when we enter into these difficult times of life was, how can you let this happen? Like, God, how can you let this happen to me? You know, you kind of go back and forth. So then it's, well, thank you so much for the runaway truck ramp, but what if there hadn't been one? And what about the people who, who don't get a runaway truck ramp? You know, so there was just so much, it really brought up a lot of questions for us. So you guys came back and, oddly enough, had an idea for your next book. Yeah, <laughs> right. So what was the book called? Uh, it's called How to Use a Runaway Truck Ramp. Right. So, <laughs> so yeah. you could definitely um, check that out um, for more of the story that you just heard. Um, yeah, so we connected that, and it was awesome just to hear about those adventures. But then I think sometimes it's like we go through these things like, yes, this is working. Yes, this is glorious. This is an awesome story. But then, like, the reality of, like, all right, is this really working, or am I just supposed to, like, how am I supposed to keep going here? Because it seems like it'd be nice if there was a little bit more money to help me keep going, especially as a dad. So I don't know, could you talk to us about some of that journey? Oddly enough, that whole thing of the, of the runaway truck ramp has really, has played out in different ways in our lives. So I, for us, a lot of times there is a way out, but you don't really know if you want to take it or not. Um, so you're on this path that everybody else goes on and you know, it, I mean, for us in Virginia, it was really like a runaway. We were, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Northern Virginia at all, but it's, yeah, so it's like one of the wealthiest parts in the country. Everything's super expensive. Every, it seems like everyone has a lot of money and it's not necessarily the case, but it's very easy to get caught up in all this stuff. You know, you, you need the bigger house and you need the nicer cars. And, and that, that was very much the path that we were on. And it was, for our family, it was a path to destruction. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't going well for us there. Coming back and moving into my parents' basement was like the runaway truck ramp we didn't want to take. 
it was an option and it was there in front of us and, and we knew that was a way out, but it, it didn't feel like a really fun way out. So I think a lot of times, um, you know, if you know you're not on the path you should be on and then you get an opportunity, you need to take it, even if it doesn't feel perfect or, you know, maybe it, you know it's going to be uncomfortable for a while. Um, that's proven to be true. Yeah, I think that's really good because it can be easy to look at someone else's life and think like, well, that's not the path they had to take to get there. I'd rather just skip this and get rescued. Yeah, and I, you know, it's so easy to make decisions just based on financial security or perception of financial security. I was telling Mark beforehand, when I was a kid, my dad, he worked for Andy Ann's for a while as a franchise director, like in the mid 90s. Uh, he was doing such a good job and Andy Ann's was growing so quickly that, that um, another company came to him and said, look, we're, you know, we'd like you to move to Florida and take over franchising for our company. Um, you know, here's a nice six figure income. And this was in the early 90s, so that was a heck of a lot of money. And, but my dad was just never, he just never seemed to care about money. Like that was just not his, I don't know, it just never really drew him. And so he said no to that and took a job for $24,000 working at Teen Challenge. You know, like that was, that's what I grew up in. And so I think for me, that was a good thing because by the time I got to be an adult, I, I at least had been exposed to this idea Maybe I didn't buy into it completely yet, but I had been exposed to this idea that money isn't everything. My father was similar, so in Lancaster County, I think we were both probably pretty unusual um, to have that. And we were talking about the huge blessing that it is, and just obviously wanting to encourage um, everybody here, like just to keep that that perspective in mind it's hard like it's not like just that choice wasn't just like okay we left Virginia it was hard for six months and now you know I've made my millions and we can coast or whatever um, and you, you had to make it again and again and I remember Sean uh, Sean reaching out to me he sent me an email he's like hey we're gonna uh, I'm trying to figure out you know I, there's this job out here I'm thinking about sending out my resume I think you emailed a bunch of like some close friends who's saying like can you guys help give me some discernment on this and I'm like I remember like reading the email and like I'm like if he freaking takes this job like I'm gonna be pissed and just trying to work through with Heather like is that just me or whatever and so I don't even think we had a conversation about it and I bumped into you at Prince Street and we started talking and um how was it? Was it your friend in human resources or something? Well, I mean, this happened so many times through the last 10 years. You know, it's, you can make a decision to follow your dreams and you can even do, you know, fairly well at it for a while. But when, when you're doing something that you don't get a paycheck for, there are inevitably going to be times when the money's short or when it's, you know, when things just aren't coming in how you'd like them to come in. And so, yeah, I mean, for the last eight or nine years, that has been like a constant for me is, is trying to decide, can I keep doing this? Do I want to keep doing this? I mean, writing is the thing that I want to do, but when, you know, I have six kids too, so it's like I have to provide for my family. Um, so it's a hard, yeah, it's a hard, I don't know, there's no formula, you know, and, and I don't think that if I would have taken a job at any time in the last 10 years that that would have been a failure necessarily. Right. Um, but I also do think that when you put yourself in a position to trust, 
um, and to trust God, that it's a good place to be. So things don't always work out how you think they're going to work out, and maybe you can't get the things that you want or even pay the bills that you need to all the time. Brennan Manning has a great book called Ruthless Trust. And I wish I could, I haven't memorized the quote, but it's basically something like, the way of the pilgrim is always a journey into the unknown. Um, you know, that uh, trust requires you not knowing, because otherwise it's not trust. And I'm not saying, you, you know, that if you have a normal job, you can't trust God. There's all kinds of different things that we encounter that require us to trust. Um, but, but for me, this has been, yeah. this has been that thing yeah. that constantly brings me back. Yeah. And again, it's one of the things I love about Sean is like, I've watched him like wrestle through this at different times. And I think that particular time you were, you were going to send your resume out and the guy in the HR who was in HR at the company that either you were sending it to or a similar company was like, Sean, I just read your email and I just screamed, no, like, I want to get where you are. Don't come join me. I want to be living from my heart and living my dreams. And I remember that was a conversation that we had. And then um, there was a couple of other times like that. But the point is, it's like, that's the reality of it. There's some blood and guts there. Two days ago, I was some friends of uh, we were hanging out up at the Bulls Head, and my friend Ryan was saying, I feel like I'm realizing a lot of times when I pray, I'm asking for something or I'm asking for clarity on the next step or what I'm supposed to do, and I feel like recently I've been feeling like maybe I should just ask God what he wants to talk to me about. So I've been trying to do that, um, which seems, you know, pretty basic but so this morning I did that I mean I got up and was wrestling through some heaviness or frustration I'm not even sure about what and I was like all right I'm gonna sit down in a chair and ask God what he really wants to say to me right now and I felt like he said a couple things the first was like I love to see you with a pen in your hand writing on the paper you know which is awesome um, it was also had been like two weeks since I had done that. But the next thing he said is, I love watching you move with the ebbs and flows of your business. And I felt like God had started talking to me about the tides and the ocean. And we just took Heather to the beach for Mother's Day over the weekend. And so um, when we got to the beach, it was a totally spontaneous trip. So we just packed up after breakfast and decided we're just going to drive so we find sunshine. And so we did that on Saturday. So it was like 3 o'clock and we just run out onto the beach and then realized after we plop all our stuff down and start playing that the tide's coming in. So it's like a family of, you know, seven of us. It's a lot of crap to, to move. And so, you know, the tide's coming in. And if you don't, if the concept of like a high tide isn't really in your brain, like if there's not a marker, you would definitely kind of start to freak out at that moment instead of just realizing, no, there's a high tide marker. So you can actually plan for this. Like you could just pull your stuff back like 20 feet and you're going to be okay. It's not just going to like wash away all these buildings. Um, and it felt like um, this was in regards to business and finances and so forth. Because when you're on your own and you're not like working for someone else, the salary for someone else, there's like this thing that's going to happen. You know, it's, there's going to be times where Sam, you know, has like 20 photo shoots in a month and then the next month it's like crickets. And it's like, how do you 
deal with that. And I, I felt like it was like this thing of the tides. And so if you know there's a high tide marker, it's not going to go past a certain point. You don't have to freak out. You can enjoy it. And then you can also recognize that when the water is receding, there's a low tide too. It's not just going to pull the whole way back and leave you with a, with a completely messed up, mucky ocean bed. Um, and to remember that low tide is some of the sweetest times where you find the best treasures on the beach. It's when you're going to find shells. It's a super peaceful time, um, and it's an awesome time to walk and just kind of come to a place of rest. And so I felt like um, this is kind of what was happening in me this morning as I just um, chose to be still for a little while, but I've been thinking about it throughout the day and just like, wow, so God's smiling as I learn to just not freak out just because the tide's moving back a little bit. Or if I choose, you know, not to get worried at low tide, but actually look around and really savor the relationships or the connection or the fact that I have time to get lunch with Sam or Ken or, you know, or go on a motorcycle ride. I went, I got done a photo shoot last week early and I went home and I was like, all right, now I can be extra faithful and get done extra early. The stuff that I had already told people I was going to get them tomorrow by noon. I'll just surprise them today at five. And, and it was like, Heather was like, well, why don't you just hang out with me? Why don't we go on a motorcycle ride? And I'm like, well, yeah, that would, that, I would definitely punch me if I were someone else right now, like, trying to go and create new deadlines for myself about stuff that isn't, no one even cares about. Um, but we can get into those places where we don't really savor um, that low tide. So I think it's really, and again, this is one of the reasons why I love Sean and Miley, I love their journey, is because um, these guys are living out the reality of this and have been for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. It's way more of an art form that it is a science. And it really is going to look, like it looks different in Sean and Miley's life than it does in Heather and I's, than it does in Jeff and Liz's, than it does in Chelsea's or Bridget's, and you know, Chris and Leah's. Like, it's going to look different for all of us. But the point is, I think there are some principles and um, some things that you can learn from from listening to stories. Um, yeah, I think that that whole idea of tides or seasons is really important. If, if we have gotten better at anything, it's, it's not that, you know, work is, is necessarily more, is steadier or more consistent now than it was nine or 10 years ago. But I think Miley and I have gotten to the place where when things are slow and, you know, money's low, we don't freak out like we used to. Um, and we've learned to just settle into it and know that this is just for a time. You know, we're, we're not gonna be, you know, God's not gonna leave us high and dry. And, and what are we really seeking? You know, I think that, that really comes into play with learning how to handle the seasons better is, is to drill down into yourself and try and figure out what am I really looking for? What am I, you know, I think for me, I, what I learned through the seasons is that I really want stability and sometimes I want that stability more than I should or more than anything else in my life. And so I've learned over the last nine or 10 years to deal with instability and to be okay with that. Um, and so maybe for you, it's something else that, that you need to learn, but seasons will, will really help you to see that as Heather and I were moving towards summertime, it's like kids are out of school. And even if you guys don't have kids, like, I don't know, it feels like there's something, 
about family and about like what Sean was just saying is like, what are you really working for? What do you really want to get after? And like just valuing, choosing to take time this summer and really value what you say you value by spending your time on it, by making time for relationships, by connection. And, um, and if it's a low tide for you in your business, um, really savor that instead of, um, instead of freaking out, you're not doing anything wrong that that's happening. Most likely it's just happening because God's designed these seasons and um, actually he probably has some pretty sweet shells or um, sand dollars or something for you to find along the way. I think the, the, the interesting part of me that I realized was that I had two different ways of handling slow times. Um, so one of them was to just kind of shut down and kind of hibernate in a way. So, you know, to emotionally withdraw and to, and to hunker down and wait and just think, okay, like I'm not gonna, I don't wanna get upset. I don't wanna, I don't wanna hope. I'm just gonna kind of hibernate is probably the best word I can think of. And I really got challenged on that, like, because there's a different, like, you can, from the outside, you can see someone and think, wow, they're really getting through this, you know? Um, but when I would do that, it was really unhealthy. And so the other option was to actively seek God, trust Him, push in close, really try and figure out, you know, what's going on here? What do I need to learn? What do I need to, to, to wait for or think about or focus on? And so that for me is, that's still a challenge, you know, like when things get slow, I want to distract myself, you know, and I have plenty of ways to do that, whether it's um, sleeping, which I don't get to do too much anymore, but, you know, I think we all have those ways of distracting. When I was younger, it was video games, um, you know, before we had kids, and for a time it was uh, online poker. So it was like, anything that I can do uh, maybe binge watching a show, you know, like just something to bide the time. Because I knew that things would work out eventually. I just didn't want to live in that time when it was slow. You know, I wanted to numb, ignore, and kind of escape it. And so that, that, was, a, that was a revelation for me, faith-wise. It's when I started to see, oh wait, hold on, I'm getting through this time, but I'm not doing it the right way. It's totally reminded me of another one of my favorite Sean and Miley stories before you ended up um, in Holtwood. Yeah, we were, um, so we were looking, my uncle was going to finance our house for us because we didn't have any, we didn't have any money or, or credit or income history. You know, when you're self-employed, that gets kind of difficult um, unless you're making a certain amount of money. And we hadn't had really great years leading up to that, so we couldn't really get a loan through a bank. So my uncle said he would help finance a house for us. So we started looking around, and we went to him. We found a house in Quarryville that we liked. And he said, oh, I didn't realize you were looking that far south. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd kind of like to be down that direction. He said, well, he said, actually, and some of these stories, like, I mean, you know, you have a wealthy relative. So not everybody has a wealthy relative, you know, who can help them out in these ways. But anyway, he said, I didn't know you were looking down there. I actually have an old cabin um, in Holtwood that you guys can live in if you want. Like, it's not in great shape. 
And so the day that we put in an offer on this house, and they counter-offered, and so I called him to check on the financing, and he said, oh, didn't know you were looking down that way. Why don't you hold off on getting back to them on the counter and go look at this cabin? So Miley hops in a car, drives down to Holtwood, goes on this two-track lane through, like the branches are over the lane, it was a half a mile lane, back to this cabin. Gets back there, weeds are three, four feet high. They had to crawl through a window to get in because they couldn't find the key. They go inside, it's full of bugs and it's hot, there's no air conditioning. But as soon as she got in there, she was like, this is what we're supposed to do. I mean, he's gonna let us live here rent free. And they said they would clean it up a little bit, you know, before we moved in. This was September, October, actually end of September. Um, and I couldn't even go because I was out of town. And I was like, hey, whatever you think, you know, like if you think we can do this, and she said, let's do it. So my uncle and aunt said, you know what, we just wanna, we wanna clean it up a little bit. We need to, you know, change out some of the floors or whatever. Well, this turned into a full renovation, like four month process. And we would go down there on the weekends because it was a fun little, you know, out of the way area, 40 acres, all woods. And we would just go down and play on the weekends with our kids and run around and stuff. And every weekend we went down, there was a new project that was being started. And I'm like, we just, this was the second time we were living with my parents <laughs> after we got back from our trip. We just wanted a place to live. Like, I, I don't care what this place looks like. We just want to move in. So December, January, February. And finally, towards the end of the project, we go down and there's literally a hole in the roof, like a 10 by 15 hole, and the contractors are there. The entire kitchen is out in the driveway. And we start talking to the contractor. I'm like, what is going on, man? Like, what are you guys doing? I thought you were just changing out linoleum. Like, <laughs> this is crazy. And he said, well, he said that hole in the roof up there, we're building a new room there's gonna be a big window, and that is actually gonna be an office. He said, are you a writer? I said, yeah. He said, well, that's the, that's the office for the writer, so that's your office. Oh and, and I'm like, what about the kitchen, all these stuff out here? And he said, well, he said, I heard your wife likes to cook, so they're putting in like a whole, like a chef-style kitchen, six burner, like Viking, Viking range. range. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? March 1st, we move into this place rent-free, and it was our dream home. Wow. Like, it was literally, if we could have built anything in any spot in the world, that's where we would have. And so we lived there for about 15 months or so, and it was, it was amazing. It was, it was perfect for our family for that time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I f you forget how many times these things happen. The next transition is another one of my favorite stories because it's not like they were forced out or whatever. It was just, hey, it's time to move on. And so you guys bought a house in, in Lancaster and moved from literally, um, you know, the most remote part of the county to, to right in the middle of the city. And I don't know. I just think there's something about like sometimes kind of like um, the cloud by day and the fire by night. It's like the cloud is still moving if we'll be willing to follow it. And um, I was going to wear my Embiid yeah. jersey because of that's such a great 
motto, like trust the process, you know, like you have no idea where this path is leading that you're on. No idea. Trust me. You have no idea. And, you know, to, to acknowledge that is so much better than to think you have everything planned out because it's never going to work out the way you plan it. I'm not saying you can't plan things. I mean, I think planning can help you on that process, but it's probably not going to be that way five years from now, the way you think it is. So just trust what the next step is bringing and the next step and the next step. Bless my parents to have to sit back and watch your kids go through this kind of stuff. Like when I think about my kids, I'm like, get a good paying job. <laughs> you know, like make, make sure you have benefits, the healthcare, the 401k. Stop. Now, now that's just my fleshly initial response and I will love it when they go off and do what they love to do. But as a parent, you know, it's hard. And so I know, you know, my parents have been through the ringer with us, but, but they've been great. Yeah, and I think that's, again, so many great parts of your story, great facets, like your parents having your back, you know, numerous times in the journey. Because really... Not everyone has. You know, that when you make these kinds of decisions, um, people are not going to line up behind you and cheer you on all the time. And that can be, that can sometimes be the hardest part. You know, when you have family members who are like, why aren't you getting a job? You know, like that's not easy to take or to listen to, but. Do you want to talk just real quickly about kind of what you have going on right now? And even kind of what we were talking about friendship and connecting and how that played in? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I've been, I've been co-writing now for a living for about nine years. Um, and my dream had always been to be traditionally published with fiction. And um, in 2013, I wrote, or 2000, yeah, 2013, I wrote a novel called The Day the Angels Fell. It was a young adult novel. And I couldn't get an agent, so I self-published it in 2014. And the next year I got an agent, and then we ended up selling that book and uh, three other books to Ravel, which is a division of Baker. And so the first, they re-released The Day the Angels Fell in September, and then um, the sequel comes out in about two months. Yeah, and then in September, or sorry, in October, I have a nonfiction book coming out with them as well. It's about a friendship that we've made with Syrian refugees here in the city. It's called Once We Were Strangers. Um, and then my first novel that's not YA comes out in about a year, next summer. Uh, so that was a real, I mean, that, that's a whole story in and of itself, just moving into that and, um, you know, making time for that, even in the midst of trying to write for money and then, you know, still trying to make sure I was, I was yeah. doing what I wanted to do. So that was... From watching that from a distance, so you see, like, okay, you can just pursue, like, try to pursue people who have the means to pay you to write their story which and get some fulfillment out of that and enjoy it and still be a writer. Um, but then there's this dream to like, no, I really want to be published. I want to write a novel and have it be published and just to not give up on that and actually see it through self-published, but then keep going. Like, I just I love it. And then the storytelling um, refugees, 
Iraqi people. Like there's so, so we could have Sean like come 20 times and tell um, different stories about the way he's impacting the world. Yeah, that was an interesting call when I was, uh, we didn't have any work lined up and I was Ubering a lot, trying to, trying to pay bills. This was about a year ago, last spring. Um, and I got a call from another agent who said, hey, we're looking for a writer. It's like, great. <laughs> um, and the pay is such and such. It was a great pay, awesome. Um, this is a quick job, so we don't really have time to look for one, anyone else, and we know that you do good work, awesome. Um, you're, need, you're gonna need to go to Iraq for two weeks. I was like, I love the sound of that. I'm not sure how my wife is gonna respond to this. So, um, but that was, that was an amazing project. And I mean, you know, that's the thing, when you, when you step out and you start, you know, leaning into these directions of the things that you're passionate about, it's, it's amazing where that can take you and the opportunities that you can get. Um, you know, I was able to go to Istanbul a few years ago and write a book for a missionary who was dying of cancer. And it had a huge, uh, just a profound impact on me. I got to go to Iraq. Um, you know, there's just so many places and people that I've been able to meet doing this. It's been really awesome. Um, Heather and I have been listening to some podcasts recently. I mean, what you're saying, um, the one statement on the podcast the other day was like, okay, I'm not sure the world necessarily needs another song or you could argue another book or another photographer, um, you know, for sure. And she's like, I'm not sure if those things are necessary or they're not necessary, but the reality is if songwriting is what makes you come alive, if writing is what makes you come alive, if having a camera in your hands is what makes you come alive, then you need to do that. Like, you need to do that, and you need to be about that, and you need to trust the process with how that's going to unfold. And, and learning to maybe alter your expectations of what a successful life looks like. Um, you know... I've grown up surrounded by very successful business people in my family. And so for me, it was easy to start to believe that that's what success looked like, you know? Um, making a lot of money, having nice things, having a business that was doing well. And so then when I started going to writing, a lot of those things sort of trickled into that. So I started to feel like, well, I'll be a successful writer if, you know, I sell millions of copies and, um, you know, people recognize me because of the books that I've written. And then in the last year, I, I have a friend who told me, before the first book came out, he warned me. He said, you need to know, this book is not going to do for you what you want this book to do for you. And I think that's true of many things. Um, you know, whether it's starting the new business or whether it's whatever. And it's true, you know, the book did not do for me what I wanted that book to do for me. But I have started to realize that for me, success is waking up every morning, getting to write, hopefully paying the bills that are due. And that, that will be a wonderful life. I'm really glad you came. I mean, I feel like this is perfect. I think there was probably six different times tonight where I'm like, oh, that's the perfect ending. What he just said was so perfect for us to close on. And so I think we could probably keep going and there would be like probably at least two or three nuggets for every single person who's here um, or even people who are gonna listen to this. But um, yeah, I just wanna say thank you for being who you are and please 
pass that to Miley as well. We love you guys and really glad you're in Lancaster and just willing to come and share your heart and your journey with us. That's, yeah, that's what we want to do. Thanks for listening to the Hingework Podcast. Hingework is a creative co-working space in the heart of downtown Lancaster, PA. Find out more at www.hingework.com.